There's so many things that we ought to thank God for. But here's one of the biggest ones. And it's important because I sin and you sin. Our God forgives. Our God not only forgives, but he restores us to that close relationship with him. But if you're like me, you maybe did this, you did that, you sinned here, you sinned there. But there was one thing, maybe there were two that you did, that seemed so rotten. You thought, I can imagine God forgiving him for anything, him for anything, them for everything, everybody in this section for anything. But here's what I did. And I'm not sure God would ever really, really forgive me for this. It's that bad. And you drag this around. Even if you're saved and you've asked for forgiveness, it's forgiven. But you're dragging it around, not sure that God could forgive you. If you can relate to that, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm raising mine because I've been there. But if you've ever been there, or if you're there now, could you just nod your head? You can relate even a little bit. I see some people nodding. I know it's no fun. It's, I know it's painful. If we can relate just a little bit to this, we understand how Peter was feeling when he was on the beach with Jesus. And here are all these other disciples. None of them denied Jesus, not one. But here's Peter feeling like, I'm the sorriest disciple anyone could imagine. I'm here with Jesus. I don't know what he's going to say, but I'll bet he's going to tell me, I can't believe you did that. I wonder if the other disciples are going to say, I can't believe you did that. He's wondering, could God ever really forgive me? Could I ever be restored to that close relationship with him? Now, we'll find in the scriptures that the answer is a resounding yes. Why? Because of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. He forgives, he restores, but at this point, Peter is wondering, could it ever happen for me? I can look at this couple, I know it's going to happen for them. There's no doubt in my mind. I can look at this person right there. I can look at these folks right there. I know it'll happen for them, but for me, don't think so. That's where Peter is. And Jesus forgives him restores him, and calls him to ministry as his servant. It's beautiful. We're going to look at that John 21. Come on with me. John 21, and we're going to start with verse 15. That's the last chapter of John. Thank you for standing with me. That's our way of showing respect for the word of God. That's why we stand here at Abundant Life. John 21, verse 15, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you are younger, when you were younger, you girded yourself. That means to get dressed, put a belt around you. You girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you. That means wrap something around you, but it won't be a belt. Probably something to tie you up. And carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He's talking to a guy who doesn't even think he's worth two cents. You follow me. Isn't that beautiful? You may have your seats. The Lord is speaking to Peter about a higher level of service, a higher way of understanding what it means to serve the Lord. And I think because God put it in Scripture, he's speaking to every one of us who serves God or might want to serve God in the future. And that brings us to our subject for this morning, which by the Holy Spirit's power, we hope that we'll draw from this passage of Scripture. May we give our all in serving Jesus. Let's say that together. May we give our all in serving Jesus. That's my prayer, and I believe that's God's prayer for all of us, that we would give our all in serving him. Would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes? Lord, we thank you that you are the Savior of the world. We thank you that you love and you do forgive. We thank you that you heal, that you are the Lamb of God. But, oh, Lord, sometimes we're not sure we really have that love. We're not sure we're totally forgiven. We're waiting for restoration. Oh God, show us who you really are. And if there's one person here today who doesn't know you, have that man or woman or boy or girl want to come to know you as Savior. Save souls, touch hearts, and draw us closer. Strengthen us that we may serve you and give you our all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is there on the beach with Peter and six other disciples. And he does an amazing thing. He fixes them breakfast. Heard about that in our last sermon. If you were there, if not, you can listen to it online. It's amazing. He appeared miraculously on the beach. They had been toiling all night fishing. They caught not one fish. But the Lord said to them from 100 yards away on the shore, uh, guys, he used a word that means little boys. <laughs> you, you didn't catch anything, did you? And they said, no. He said, listen, you've been they knew, he knew they had been toiling all night. Just cast on the right side of the boat, and you'll catch something. And so they did. They cast on the right side. They caught 153 fish, 153 large fish, so large that they couldn't pull the nets all the way in. And, of course, it reminded them of when they had been called three years earlier by Jesus, and they had a miraculous catch of fish that was so great that the nets began to tear. And John looked up and realized that this person a hundred yards away was no normal human being. He said, it's the Lord. Peter realized it was the Lord and being the impulsive guy who was, who always wanted to be with Jesus, 
put on his clothes, because he had been fishing with, you know, not much on, kind of down in his shorts or whatever, put on his clothes, jumped in the water and swam 100 yards so he could be with Jesus. So that when he got there, he could be properly clothed and say, hello, Lord. That's why he put on his clothes before he got in the water. Now he gets there and Jesus has this breakfast ready for him and the disciples who come in the boat. He's got fish. The beautiful thing is, evidently, Jesus made the fish like that. Think of it. He's the savior of the world. It's not like he's got to get a pole and go, man, they are not biting today, right? He's the savior of the world. He wants fish. Bam, he's got fish. Bread, made bread. Evidently made a heap of coals so that he could cook the fish over it. He's making breakfast for them. They eat breakfast, and now he's going to have this chat with Peter. Here's what's beautiful. You know, when you've had a good meal, you can think better. Amen? You can hear. And now he wants to talk to Peter about restoration. But Peter is thinking, this isn't about restoration. He's going to blast me for my sin. And part of it is that there's a heap of coals there. We've got a picture of a heap of coals. Let's take a look at that. Jesus made this heap of coals evidently miraculously. If it had been there an hour or two, they would have seen it an hour or two earlier. He was only 100 yards away. But it appears. So it means that Jesus made it. There's this heap of coals. Peter's looking at it. I suspect that Jesus made that heap of coals look like the same one that Peter had been warming his hands over days earlier when he denied Jesus. God is so great, he might have made the heap about the same height. It might, the coals might have looked exactly the same. I don't know. We can ask the Lord when we get there. But I know for sure that it reminded him of it because by the Holy Spirit's agency, only twice is that particular Greek word used in the entire Bible that means heap of coals. Once when Peter denied Jesus and he's warming his hands. Do you know him? Nope. Do you know him? Nope. Wait a minute. You've got that funny accent. You sound like you're from Galilee. Are you sure? I told you I don't know him. Then the rooster crows. Peter realizes he sinned against God and he goes out and he weeps. Now that's important. This had happened days earlier. He really must have repented. The Bible says he wept bitterly. But even with that repentance, he thinks the Lord is going to hold this against him. So when Peter sees the heap of coals, he's probably thinking, oh no. Now I'm here on the beach days later. This reminds me of that heap of coals when, when, that I was warming my hands over. He's going to tell me how terrible I am. But the Lord is saying, I want to restore you. I want to bring you back to me. I want to call you to serve me. Peter can't see it because he's thinking, I'm a nobody. And so Jesus begins by saying to him in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, he's calling Peter to a higher kind of love. He's saying, I want to know if you love me with the love of God. As many of you know, in the Greek language, there are several words for love, two that are used in the New Testament. In English, we just say love. We mean all kinds of silly stuff. I love, I love pizza. You know, and people will say, I love you, and they may or may not care about you. Somebody say amen. You know, that's true. You know, it's true. They may care. They may not. But Jesus is saying, do you love me with the love of God? Do you love me with agape love? He uses a specific word. Peter is feeling like he can't say that. So he's saying, well, I love you more like a friend. Totally different word. Do you love me with agape love? That's agapao. That's the verb. Jesus is saying, 
Do you love me? With this kind of love. Peter is like, oh, I don't know that I can say that. So I'll just say, I love you with friendship love. That's phileo. Totally different Greek word. Still translated love. He's trying to call him to a higher type of love, and Peter's not sure that he's ready because he feels so ashamed. And then the Lord's trying to challenge him to be humble, because notice he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Now, I don't think he's talking about the fish. I don't think so. I don't think he's talking about the fishing boats. He's saying, do you really love me more than these fellow disciples? You know why? Because you said nobody else could possibly be as dedicated to you, Jesus, as me. Come with me to Matthew 26. That's three books before where we are. We're in John. Come with me back to Matthew 26, verse 31. And let's look at what happened on the night that Jesus was arrested. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 31. Jesus is speaking. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, said Jesus, I will go before you to Galilee. Guess what? In the passage where we are, guess where they are? They're in Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You see that? Not me. I'm with you, Jesus. Got your back. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. So they all said that they wouldn't deny him. But Peter was the one who said, None of these other guys get it. Jesus, I promise you, there's no way I'm going to deny you. He denies him. And the Lord is saying, do you really love me more than all these brothers of yours? No, you don't. You need to repent of your pride. That's point number one. We're going to serve God. We need some humility. Point number one, how humbly do we serve? That's a question for every servant of Jesus, including Peter, including me. Let's ask that together. How humbly do we serve? He wants Peter to have that humility instead of comparing himself, and we all do it. You know, Lord, I would never commit the sin that I see that person committing, especially if you're somebody I don't like. There's no way I would do what that guy is doing because he's so messed up. Oh, Lord, you know I'm really faithful. Really, says the Lord. You've never done that? And all 50-something, well, now, if you put it that way, where's your humility? This, for me, is convicting, because I'm sure I've done this. Oh, but I, I would never, what, I would never, well, you've sinned against me. Every time we sin, we deny the Lord. You don't have to be the one who's saying, I deny it, I don't know him, I deny it, I don't know him, I deny it, and then you hear the rooster crow. We're all sinful people. Peter's got pride, and the Lord is saying, I want you to be humble before me. It's all about saying, God, I'm just glad to be serving you. And here the Lord says to Peter, I want you to feed, I want you to take care of my little lambs. He uses a beautiful word there that means not just the older sheep, but the little lambs, like the little children. 
He says, I want you to take care of it. Here's a guy who's messed up, who's feeling like he'll never be forgiven. And the Lord's saying, take care of my little sheep, and especially the little ones, my little lambs. What an honor. Peter doesn't get it because he's feeling, oh, I'm really messed up. But the Lord is showing him that he's restoring Peter. But it's got to start with humility. There's a beautiful story of that humble spirit before the Lord and calling out to God with love that I, I really enjoy. There's a mom who's teaching her little girl. Let's talk about little lambs, ministering to the little lambs. She's teaching her little girl how to pray. So she wants to teach her the Lord's Prayer. And they practice it over and over. And finally the mom says, sweetheart, I think you're ready. Mom, I know I can do it. Okay. So they get by the bed. Mom puts her hands together. The little girl puts her hands together. Mom says, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So mom closes her eyes. Little girl's here. She closes her eyes. And she begins to pray with great reverence. Our Father, whose art is in heaven, Howard is your name. Thy kingdom come. And she goes on and prays the rest of it. And you know God was in heaven saying, oh, that's so sweet. He's not thinking about Howard. She humbled herself before the Lord. Do you see what I mean? That's what he wants. It's worship. But sometimes when we're serving God, we walk around and compare ourselves or say, God, I'll do this for you, but I don't want to do that. It's pride. We need to be humble. Years ago, I was serving in a, a fine church. I don't want to mention it because they were going through a very tough time financially uh, and uh, could not afford almost anything. Couldn't afford a janitor, couldn't afford a lot of things. But I was serving there as one of the pastors and uh, it was way after church and there was this terrible smell in the church and everybody was gone except two of us. We were wondering, where does that come from? So we looked around and we figured out it was one of the bathrooms and we went in there and whew, this is really bad. Now, there are two people who don't know a whole lot about plumbing. This guy, I'm a preacher, and the other guy was a techie. And we're looking at this problem, and it really, really smells. Now, the guy that I was with, Ron, who was also a member of the church at the time, he's a young guy. He's a techie. Now, this is, you know, he's in Silicon Valley. He's very young. He doesn't have a lot of contacts. By the way, he happened to be African-American. There weren't that many African-Americans doing stuff in Silicon Valley. But he, he was a guy who had decided he could make IBM computers do great things in the world of graphics. And people told him, you're crazy. If you want to do that, you need an Apple. He said, just you watch. If you understand the architecture and you know how to write software, you can do it. And he did. He founded a company so long ago. This was before we used the phrase startup or startup CEO. But that's what he was. He's a startup CEO. So you've got this computer genius who knows about software and coding and IBM machines. And you've got a preacher fresh out of school, young and proud and all that stuff. I know a little bit about the Bible and ministry, but neither one of us knew a lot about plumbing. And we got a major plumbing problem. And it stinks. And it's going to get worse. Now, fortunately, he knew a little bit. And so Ron looked at the situation. He said, you know what we're going to have to do? I said, listen, man, I don't know anything about plumbing, so you tell me. He said, we're looking at a toilet. He said, you see those two bolts on the floor? As soon as he said that, I said, oh, man. man. We need to loosen those. We're going to lift this thing up. We're going to figure out what's clogging it. We're gonna... I had never done this before. I guess he had seen it done. And I thought, can you do that? Yeah, okay, so we kind of went into analytical mode. Both of us have a technical background. We're trying to get the problem solved. But there's a part of me that was going... I don't believe this. Man, I didn't go to seminary for this. 
Shouldn't I be praying for somebody or counseling somebody or getting ready, doing a Bible study? Plus, it stinks in here. That's what I was. Uh, it, and God was speaking to me the way he was speaking to Peter. Do you really love me with the love of God? Or are you proud enough to say, Lord, I'll do these things for you, but I'd really rather not mess with this stinky situation. You need to repent, Marcus. Yes, Lord, I do. So we attacked it. We, we actually did pick the thing up and got it unclogged and, and put the bolts back and we had to do some serious mopping. But it, and we were done, we were tired, we were sweaty. I'm sure we did not smell good, but we had been able to do something for the Lord. A techie and a preacher doing some plumbing. But it was good because God was humbling me. I don't know about Ron, but he was humbling me. This is what you're going to do for me today. And he was asking me the same thing he was asking Peter. Do you really love me with a full love, with a complete love? Or is it like, yeah, I'm kind of your friend, Jesus. He had to keep asking Peter. Look at verse 16. He's challenging him. Same way he had challenged me. Verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Same word, agape love, the love up here. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's talking about friendship love. Very sad. Because he can't come up to the level that God is challenging him to. You know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Again, he's challenging Peter to go and do what he's supposed to do. Use his gifts for the kingdom. And Peter's thinking, I can't. It's not the same kind of love that they're talking about. Let me give you an example. I am a huge, huge fan of a worship artist named Fred Hammond. Some of you know him. And there's a great worship song. And it goes something like this, Lord, my heart is yours. It all belongs to you. I give you all the glory. Yes, I love you. I worship and adore. I'm going to tell you more. Lord, how much I really do love you. I love you, Lord. Lord, how I love you. That's agape love. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you love me like that? Peter is responding with friendship love. Now, in English, sometimes we'll say this in modern times. You know how guys will say, love you, man. You know? And sometimes you get a little fist bump in there, love you. Now, does that mean that guy would die for you? Probably not. Is it a total commitment as a friend that anything he could do to help you or your family he would do? Probably not. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, do you love me with a worshipful love? Do you love me with a complete love? Oh, God, I love you. And Peter is going, love you, Jesus. That's what's being said. He continues to challenge him, though. And then he says, I want you to tend my sheep. Different word. Shepherd my sheep. Be the shepherd. And his challenge is this. Do you really have complete love for me, Peter, or not? That's point number two. Point number two, how complete is our love for Jesus? Let's ask that together. How complete is our love for Jesus? The question is, am I really a person who loves Jesus and will do whatever it takes to honor him? Is it a complete love or am I just trying to be his buddy? I think Peter probably had that wonderful agape love, but he was so ashamed he couldn't imagine that the Lord wanted to use him at all. And so he kept saying, love you, man. Love you, Jesus. Instead of, I love you with a worshipful love. 
And so that's the challenge for us. How complete is our love? The Lord was saying to him, tend my sheep, because he knew that Peter would make a great shepherd, a great apostle, that he would speak the word of God, that he would preach the word of God and help churches get started and help people fall in love with Jesus over many years. God knew how he was going to use Peter. He was basically saying, I've got gifts that I've given you. I want you to use them. And Peter's saying, me? (laughs) But Lord, I'm the guy who, I mean, I did this. I denied you. I mean, nobody... I, I can't imagine that. The Lord's saying, I can. And he's calling him to a higher love. I believe he's calling some of us to that higher kind of loving service today. I believe there are probably a few of us in here, maybe more than a few. You've got a gift the Holy Spirit has given you. And you may be in a season where God is saying, you need some rest. You don't need to do any ministry right now. Just sit and rest and heal. That's okay. If you are, take all the rest you want. But there might be a few of us where you've got a gift and the Lord's saying, get out there and use it for me. And you're going, me? For different reasons. Maybe because of this, whatever that is in your life. Maybe just because you are tired. Maybe just because you're not sure anybody needs your help. But part of our love for the Lord is if he gives us a gift, we use it for the kingdom. Amen. My wife and I were talking about this the other day, and and, and she had been praying about, last week, you know, the the sermon was about purpose. Two weeks ago when I was preaching, we need God's help to help us understand purpose and direction. So we said, you know what, let's let's look at our gifts. Let's take a look and see, is God using it? We've talked about it before, but we thought, let's take a new look. And we actually printed out a spiritual gifts test and sat there by the lake. It was a nice day and looked at it and, you know, figured out our gifts and chatted. And we kind of got the sense, it it was a real sense of relief. Here are our gifts, and we are using them, our primary gifts. We are using them for the kingdom. Praise the Lord. And we didn't have any sense that God had a new place for us to use them necessarily, but it's a good thing to check in because we need to use what God's given us to bless the kingdom and to touch the hearts of people who don't know Jesus yet. Amen? And I believe there are some people in here, you got a gift, and you need to step up. You need to stand up. You need to find a place to use that gift to bless people in the kingdom, probably here at Abundant Life, because we need you. God wants you to show him your love by saying, Lord, you gave me this gift, so I'm going to use it. Hallelujah. And if for some reason you don't know your gift, do you know today in the technological world in which we live, you can know it in about 15 minutes? Let me tell you what you Google. It's simple. Spiritual Gifts test. Three words. It's real simple. Spiritual gifts test. I googled that yesterday. 3.9 million different places I could go to learn about that. You call up the website, you answer some questions, 80 questions, 100 questions, whatever. Usually takes you 10, 12 minutes, 15. You're done. And it will tell you exactly what your main gifts are. Even for young people, they have, it for, uh, they have a, a teenager's version of the spiritual gifts test. But the point is, once you know them, either you go find a place to use it, or just call up the church and talk to one of the pastors, or talk to a pastor or elder today after, hey, you know what, here, here are my gifts. What can I do here to serve the Lord? There's got to be a place for you. But it's part of saying, God, I have this complete love for you. I'm all, I'm totally for you. I want you to use my gifts. Peter couldn't do that because he was thinking, have I really been forgiven? I don't know if that's where you are. 
But Peter hesitated because he wasn't sure he'd been forgiven. And so the third time, Jesus asks him a different question. Look with me at 17. Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this time, Jesus used the word that means, do you love me? Do you love me like a friend? He came down to Peter's level. Because Peter wasn't willing to say, I really love you with the love of God, because then maybe he thought Jesus would have said, and what were you doing all that time fishing? Why weren't you fishing for men? Don't you remember when you denied me? Heap of coals, heap of coals, get it? I don't know that Jesus would have said that. I suspect he wouldn't have. But Peter, he, he couldn't come out and say it. And so Jesus says, do you love me like a friend? Phileo, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Same word. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. He's still challenging him to go out and use his gifts. But Peter wasn't sure he could be forgiven. And that's point number three. I wonder if it's true for some of us. Point number three. How fully can we accept Jesus' forgiveness? That's the question. Let's ask that together. How fully can we accept Jesus' forgiveness? It's full. It's complete. It's it's true. It's done at the cross. But there are times when God's forgiven me and Marcus hasn't forgiven Marcus. Or you haven't forgiven you for whatever reason. Sometimes you need people around you to remind you that God is a forgiving God. And the Lord saying to him, listen, I know this is painful, but I still want you to feed my sheep. Here's what's interesting. It says it grieved Peter. It grieved him because he's thinking about the fire of coals. Oh, man, I remember the denial. I denied him three times. And he's asking me three times, is there a symbol in that? Not the one he's thinking. And it's painful. It it, it grieves me because he's asking me this. And and now he's saying, well, do you at least love me like a friend? Uh, Love you. Love you. It grieved him. But I love what one Bible scholar says. I'm going to quote him here. Arthur Pink. He says, the Lord wounds only so that he can heal. I want to say that again. The Lord wounds only so that he can heal. The devil wounds because he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Emphasis on destroy. He's a monster. But if the Lord wounds you, or you, or me, or you, he's doing it because there's healing that needs to happen. It's surgery. So this is painful. This is embarrassing. The heap of coals and three times. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I know you denied me three times, and so Peter, I want to call out to you, and I want to have you say you love me three times. And the third time, you are restored. Actually, I restored you before, but you didn't know that. So I'm I'm taking you through this. It's painful. It's embarrassing. Your buddies are around. You think we're going to slam you. I want you to understand I'm healing you. So now the third time, I'm going to say to you, feed my sheep. Three times you denied me. Three times I'm showing you, you are forgiven. You are restored. You are healed. And Peter is stunned. Because he can't believe that Jesus could love him like that. Let's look at that fire of coals again. I hope at this point, Peter is looking at these coals. And instead of saying, they remind me of what I did. And this means that God could not forgive me. 
I hope and pray that now Peter is looking at these coals that Jesus made and he's saying, hey, wait a minute. Yes, I was warming my hands over a heap of coals when I committed this terrible sin of denying him. But now I'm eating the best breakfast I've ever had in the world. Jesus made it for me, literally made it for me. I'm talking with my Savior at sunrise on the beach. And he has healed me. And he has restored me. And he still has ministry for me to do. I'm his servant. What an honor. I think Peter's just starting to see that. Our God forgives and he restores. And then he says a couple of verses later, follow me. That's his last word of grace. It's a wonderful story of restoration I want to share with you. A minister of the gospel got caught up in a number of sins, and it was not in California. So this is probably not somebody you know. <laughs> Happened in the Midwest. D.A. Carson, the great Bible teacher and pastor, uh, tells this story at a pastor's conference. This man, strangely, he, he got into some financial sins and stuff, but he started, believe it or not, stealing sermons. So he would get somebody's sermon, I don't know if it was from the internet or whatever, and he would print it out and write it out and pretend it was his own and get up there in the pulpit and preach it and make it sound fantastic. And if people said that was a great message, there's no way he'd say, hey, I got it from this amazing guy who's preaching at a church, you know, 50 miles away or in another country. That's where it started. And D.A. Carson makes the point that here's a guy who probably didn't understand service. We're talking about serving the Lord today. Probably didn't understand service because if he did, he'd understand preaching is not about coming up with a great message. It's not about having, being a shrewd tape recorder. It's about getting your Bible and getting in the, in, the, in the closet and going, Lord, what did John mean by that? What, is, where, what does this mean? Okay, now I know. What is this verb? What? Hold on. Let, let me see. I don't understand. And praying that if you listen to other messages, you're listening to them so you can hear what God's saying to you. You can be convicted. You can grow. You can be closer to God. And then when you get up, you want to preach the word of God so people can be blessed and somebody can be saved. It's got nothing to do with, hey, man, that was a great sermon. Man, you are really good. What a waste of time. He didn't get it. He didn't get it. Because he was coming up with these great messages, some of which he had stolen. And then he started stealing other stuff. He had a gambling problem. Got worse and worse and worse. And so he figured out that the church had a fund for the poor. And he had this, these huge gambling debts, so he stole money from the church. That was supposed to be helping the poor. He stole $50,000 from his own church. Supposed to help the poor. And he covered it up because he had been a lawyer before he had been a pastor. So he knew how to set up dummy corporations. So he did that to protect himself. But his debts got worse. And then he refinanced his house, lost all that money. His debts got worse. And then he found, oh, I can, and he kept using a computer to do all this. He stole some money from two members. One of them was a widow. He stole a total of $20,000 from two different members, one of them a widow. And finally, all this stuff caught up with him. And his life imploded. And D.A. Carson said there were some other sins in his life he didn't want to mention. I don't know what they were. He just said, I don't want to say what they are. Might have been moral, might not. I don't know. He said everything came crashing and burning. And because he'd broken the law, he was basically on his way to jail. Nearly suicidal. And that was the breaking point. And he began to repent. 
And when it came time for him to go to court, his lawyer told him, hey, listen, just plead innocent. He said, no, I'm guilty. I'm pleading guilty. So he did. Went to jail. Got out of jail. And he was part of a denomination that believes that God can restore people. Amen. God forgives. Not always to leadership right away. But God restores people to fellowship with people and with the Lord. And so they, they said, you want to be in our program? Yes, I do. So the first thing he did when he got out of jail, told his wife, okay, I, I'm told I'm not supposed to touch the finances in this house. So he didn't. His wife took over all the finances and he got five bucks a week. That's all he got because he couldn't be trusted with money. He wasn't allowed to use a computer unless somebody was with him like his wife or a good friend because he had done so many terrible things with computers. He didn't touch computers. He ended up taking a Mickey Mouse job, making no money at all. Here's a guy who used to be a lawyer. He's used to good salaries. He took this job making almost nothing because he wanted to do right. He went around and he apologized to all the people he had hurt. And the church said, you need to, we need to have a celebration because you're being restored to fellowship with each other and with, with us and with the Lord. And so they had this wonderful celebration at this church. And they praised God for how far he had gotten. And he was in recovery ministry. Pastor Toby oversees our recovery ministry. He was in recovery from his gambling addiction. And he probably went to something like an AA for people who have a gambling problem. He did all the stuff he was supposed to do and he was restored to fellowship with the Lord and restored to fellowship with brothers and sisters. Wisely, this church did not even address the issue of whether he should be brought back to leadership in the pulpit. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the Bible says if you're going to be in an elder equivalent position, you've got to have a good reputation with outsiders. And that takes time. That doesn't happen in two months or six, three to six months, or nine months, or whatever amount of time he was in jail. If you're going to be in that position, you need to be somebody who's considered above reproach. It's the first thing in the list in 1 Timothy 3. Read it on your own. It takes a while to be above reproach after something like that. I don't know, a year and a half, two years, I don't know. You can't come back to leadership right away. You're supposed to be somebody who has self-control. When he's done all this, stole $70,000 from his own church? have self-control not then but over time he can and so when da carson told the story he said we hoped and prayed that one day he would be restored to ministry and he could be in pastoral ministry but right then we were glad we were restored in fellowship with one another and he's restored in fellowship with god god restores he forgives and he heals but the first step is for us truly to repent and do what the Bible calls, let me say this briefly, the works of repentance. It's one thing to say, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. If I know I got a problem with stealing pianos, if that's my thing, and I got some strong friends with muscles like this, and we like to steal pianos, if I'm hanging out someplace, I should not be hanging out over here. I ought to hang out over here with the drums. And if I am a serious piano stealer, I may not want to look over there because I'll be going, whoo, that looks nice. I should look over here and find some way to stay. You've got to have the works of repentance. You see what the guy did? Okay, I'm not trusted with computers. That's it. Won't touch one. Not trusted with money. Okay, honey, handle all the finances. Right? I can't be trusted in a normal job, so I'll just take this job. I'll make minimum wage, and I'll be thankful that somebody employed me after I got out. The works of repentance. That's what it takes. 
And God challenges us to get on our knees and say, Lord, forgive me. Now, if we've repented, it's done. It's covered. The problem is some of us have something going on and we haven't repented. We haven't gotten to the works of repentance. We haven't repented. If you've got something going on in your life and you know it's wrong, maybe there's an ungodly relationship and you're in it. Maybe you're a married person and you're involved with somebody who's not your wife or is not your husband. You just need to repent and cut off everything. You shouldn't even be a friend of that person on Facebook. Ever. That's repentance. That's what it means. If there's something going on that's ungodly, you ought to be like Peter, weeping bitterly. Oh, Lord, I denied you. That's what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't claim to be a servant of Jesus Christ, it's still destructive because you're hurting yourself, you're hurting your marriage, whatever it is. But the repentance starts with you saying, oh, God, I'm sorry. And then it becomes your responsibility to make sure that you show the works of repentance. Because it's really all about this. Am I going to give myself fully to the Lord or am I going to hang on to little parts of my life? Which most of us do. That's what Jesus was challenging Peter to do. Look with me at verse 18. He's challenging him. Do you want to give your all? Verse 18. The Lord says this to Peter, most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself. That means you dressed yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, this is so beautiful. The guy who didn't think God could use him, follow me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, you told me that you would die for me. Okay, guess what? One day. You're actually going to die for me. People are going to carry you a place you don't want to go. They'll wrap you up in something, rope or whatever. You won't like it. And you said you're going to give me your all. You're going to have to do that. I hope you're ready. And it's a challenge to all of us as servants. Because in America, the chances that we'll have to give our life for the Lord, not high. But he is saying, Marcus, are you giving me your all? And he's saying to every single servant of Jesus here, are you giving the Lord your all? That's point number four. Point number four. How fully do we give ourselves to Jesus? That's the question. Let's ask that together. How fully do we give ourselves to Jesus? Instead of hanging on to this and hanging on to that. Well, Lord, I know it says give sacrificially, but this is my money. I made this. Put a buck or two in the plate. God may even be speaking to you specifically about tithing. I happen to be a believer who believes that God does speak about that in the Old and New Testaments. Not everybody does. He may be speaking to you about that. But God, it's my money. I can tell you when I didn't tithe, by the way, I do now. When I didn't tithe, that's why I didn't tithe. I thought it was my money. I don't care what the Bible says. 10%? <laughs> no, I can do a lot of stuff with this. Not that I don't love Jesus and all. I'm serious. I had, oh, I could rationalize. And I'm glad you're laughing with me because you can rationalize too. About whatever it is. How fully do we give ourselves? We hold back. Peter gave his life. Here's what really happened. There was a monstrous person in the first century named Nero who hated Christians. His life was so ugly and immoral. If I told you it would mess up the sermon, it would make you sick. The way he lived. 
He made a sport of murdering people. He hated Christians pathologically. He martyred St. Paul and he martyred St. Peter. He, he killed a lot of Christians. But there was something that Peter did, and this is not scriptural, but this is a tradition. And so we think this happened. I can't prove it. One of the early church fathers, Jerome, who was a Bible scholar who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, said this about Peter. Here's what happened when Peter knew he was about to die for Jesus. I'm quoting Jerome now. For 20 years he held the priestly chair there. That's Rome. That is until the last or 14th year of Nero, from whom he, he's referring to Peter, won the crown of martyrdom. Think about that kind of Christianity, where they think if you get martyred for Jesus... It's a crown. Today, if somebody puts me down because of my Christian views, I get upset. And so do you sometimes. He won the crown of martyrdom, being fastened to a cross with his head downwards and his feet upwards, for he declared himself unworthy to be crucified, as was his Lord. Peter said, you know, if you're going to kill me, I'd rather you crucify me with my head down because Jesus was crucified with his head up. I'm not worthy. That's giving your all. We may not ever have to give our physical lives, but it's all about how close we want to be to Jesus. And the closer we are, the more we can say, God, I'm not carrying this. I'm not going to hold on to this anymore. I'm giving it to you. If I need to repent of this, I'm going to repent of this. I'm going to repent of that because, God, I want to be close to you. It's all about the relationship with the Lord. Look at how Jesus challenged Peter to be close in their relationship. Look with me at verse 20. Then Peter turning around. Here's an amazing thing. Peter's close. He's restored. He's forgiven. And now he takes his eyes off of Jesus. Turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who's the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, he sees John, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter saying, you know, what about John? And the Lord says, if, John, if I decide I'm going to let John stay alive until I come back for my church, what does it matter to you? Peter, it's about our relationship. And he's saying the same thing to me and you. It's about our individual relationships with Jesus. I don't need to be looking, oh, what about him? Oh, what about her? Oh, what about them? What about y'all? What about that guy I don't like and everything seems to be going so well for him? God, this doesn't seem fair. What about our relationship? That's what God is saying. Point number five. Point number five. How is my relationship with Jesus? I hope you're asking that. I am. Let's ask that together. How is my relationship with Jesus? The Lord said, don't worry about him. You follow me. Peter would go on to do great things for the Lord, as we know. He would be martyred under Nero and give his life, evidently crucified upside down. That same monstrous person, Nero, would crucify or would kill many other Christians, including Paul. John, who wrote the gospel, was the only one of the apostles who lived his full life without being killed for his faith. He lived into his 90s, and back then that was an amazing feat. He wrote this book, and 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John, and the book of Revelation, and served God all those decades, and died in peace, and went home to heaven. But they all had their own gifts 
They all had their own talents and they used them for the Lord. The other disciples, they all died. They were all killed and they didn't care because they were sold out for Jesus. They said, God, I'm giving you my all. And if I have to die, I will die for you. And they did it as men who were looking at their relationship with God and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's what God is saying to you and me. Will you serve me sacrificially? Will you serve me humbly? Will you do what I've called you to do? Will you use your gifts the way I want you to use them? Are you really giving me your all? And we ought to give him our all because he is the loving savior. He is the Lord. He is the king of kings. He is the one who took a guy who was messed up and had denied the Lord and said, I want you to take care of my little lambs. And he used this word that literally means little lambs. When Peter didn't think God could use him, the Lord said, I've forgiven you. I've restored you. Come on. I want you to do ministry. And he blessed him and said, I want you to take care of my little lambs. And then later on, John would write in the book of Revelation, about the Lamb of God, it's the same Greek word. And he would tell us how wonderful Jesus is. Listen to this from Revelations 5, 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. We are redeemed to God the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that means every race, every culture, every language, every hair color, every eye color, every skin color. And you've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and worthy is the lamb. It's the same word that was used when Jesus said, feed my lambs. And John goes on to say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. He is the lamb of God. He is the one who's the lamb of God and he takes away the sins of the world. How could we not serve him with our all? How could we not serve him sacrificially? How could we not give him our entire lives? He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't you want to serve him with everything you've got?